In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Osprey Oriole Lake is my guest today, a lifelong advocate of environmental justice and societal transformation. She's the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus on the governing board of Praxis Peace Institute and advisor to the International Eco-Cities Framework and Standards Initiative. Osprey's travelled to five continents studying ancient and modern cultures while making presentations at international conferences and universities. She's also the founder artist of the International Chima Monument Project, creating 18-foot bronze sculpture monuments for locations around the world where people can ponder a better future for the Earth and humanity. Her unique perspectives as a renowned international sculptor and public speaker on environmental issues have been featured on both national and European television. Her latest book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature, has just been released, which delves into a new kinship with nature, while acknowledging the treasures of urban life and the unique stake each person has in resolving critical and timely changes. Osprey, Oriole Lake. Osprey Oriole Lake, it's such a pleasure to welcome you to In Discussion today. Thank you so much. I'm really glad to be here. I'm extremely impressed upon reading your latest book, Oriole, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature, and your wide uh, areas of work in climate and a myriad of issues all the way through to the arts, where you engage leaders and uh, people to become immersed in these very important issues today. I always begin these programs with my guests in their childhood uh, to take them back and have them recollect memories. Can we start there and then move into your years of formal education? Sure. I was very fortunate to grow up in the very small coastal town of Mendocino in Northern California. And that really provided me with such a deep love for the land and for nature. And I moved there when I was about eight years old with my family. And the contrast between living in Mendocino and previously living in San Francisco was quite a shock to my system to realize, you know, that beyond the city streets and the high-rise buildings, there was this whole world of forests and mountains and rivers, and it completely influenced the rest of my life to see that contrast and to understand what it provided me with uh, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, to actually be on the land. And it's a lesson I never really forgot about the need for modern-day people to really have an experience with nature to become intimate and connected again to the land. So that's a, a very important part of my childhood. So clearly you found the essence of being close to the earth, the vibrations that come from that privileged position, a point that many don't have available to them, I'm sure, in being trapped in, among other circumstances, an urban reality. What was the major catalyst for you that gave you this opportunity? Was it possibly the influence of your parents, or was it just a divine capability that provided you with this close proximity with nature? Uh, I think a couple of things. Um, One, I think many people, you know, just that sense of joy of being on the land and that sense of awe and wonder that we have when we see wildlife, when we see deer, when we see birds, when we are by the rivers. And that influence, I think, uh, really, really touched me. But then um, 
you know, I started doing some backpacking in, in wilderness areas in my um, teenage years and uh, some on more what's called wilderness lands, but also on lands that, you know, were connected to areas where there was a lot of forestry. And um, I was really, really heartbroken when I came across the first time that I saw a large clear-cut forest. And it's not that I'm against uh, logging. I think there's ways we can do logging in um, a manner that is ecologically balanced. But the ones that I was seeing at that time, these huge clear-cuts up in Northern California, was like looking at a battlefield with just the land absolutely destroyed. Uh, the river systems were being destroyed because of <clears throat> the way the rivers were being silted and from the logging operations. And I knew that at a very young age, something was very wrong about how we were living. And, and that really started my process of asking questions about how could we be living differently? Why are we not living in a beautiful way with this um, planet of ours, our one and only home that offers us everything? And, and that really began my journey. And at this point, had you already found the importance of art in expressing these experiences that you were having in nature, and possibly even further to that, the strength of writing also in that purpose? Um, well, I should say that my mother was a very fabulous painter and etcher, and of course I was very influenced by being around art all of my life. And I think that there's something very central about narrative, whether we do that through stories or we do that through imagery, that is very much a part of our presence as a culture. And um, I, I feel very fortunate that I grew up in a home with a lot of art and understanding about the arts through my mother and uh, her participation in taking my sister and I to museums and, and interacting with a lot of um, artists, uh, mostly in California, New York. and. Um, Yes, I think that from early on, I, I sensed that art was a way that we could connect with the land. And of course, many indigenous people all over the world have demonstrated this to us in, in so many of the arts and the music that they have and how it's so often related to talking about the landscape, talking about the natural world. And I think there's something about how art and storytelling deeply connect us to the land when we encourage it to provide that purpose. There's much importance in learning from indigenous people, is there not? Particularly by identifying ancient civilizations such as the Mayan and of course the shamanic teachings which are so important. Perhaps would you agree, Osprey, that there is a re-emergence by these communities in indigenous areas where tribes no doubt have many of the answers to the issues that we all face that the developed countries don't understand or at this stage possess? Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, in a funny way, how I look at it is they've always been there. It's more that we are now able to um, recognize the wisdom that they've had and have always had um, and that it's really uh, an awakening that's happening in uh, Western cultures and in the developing world to really understand the heart and spirit of indigenous people and how much they have to teach us about living in balance with the earth. And, um, you know, I, I have so much respect for a lot of the indigenous peoples that I work with because they've had to survive under just the worst conditions and incredible atrocities committed against their peoples. And yet they survive and they continue to show us um, a way of living that I think we need to learn a lot from. And I don't think it's about becoming, uh, you know, I think it, it's silly to get into that framework where we think, oh, we're going to now become like the indigenous peoples of this or that country. I think it, it's more about really understanding that we have things to learn from indigenous people, from their wisdom, from their science, from their knowledge of the land, and relearn ourselves how to connect with our own ancestry and our own cultural and um, uh, uh, natural history that connects us into the land. And it's really about refinding our own indigenous roots. You clearly chose this road, Osprey, when you studied ancient history and biology in Portland. Were you already connecting the dots, as it were, in the socioeconomic and political 
influences or trends apparent for many hundreds of years the way they have compromised cultures by raping natural resources were these issues raising awareness in your mind at this stage or were you simply focused on the makeup and history of ancient civilizations um, more, I, I think the latter, I mean, I was just beginning, you know, um, in my late teens, early 20s, of course, to start making these connections. And I think what's challenging, uh, at least in the universities where I went to school, you know, the, you really have to um, be in the mindset in an aggressive way, really, to connect a lot of these different fields and begin to have an integral approach to understand how uh, historically we've become very disconnected from the land and how corporations have developed and also provided a way to unfortunately have a really ill effect many times um, on our resources. I think that um, it's a very big story, put it that way, and that it, it, it really takes um, a lot of desire to understand how we've gotten here historically to be able to uh, at, at a young age, certainly, begin to put all these pieces together. So it just took time to really develop the ideas that I have had, um, and I appreciate my college education, certainly, and, and I think college is um, a great opportunity for young people to learn. But I also think that it's important to continue to look outside of our traditional education systems because they also have their limits because they're also part of the system that has provided some of the, uh, the ways that we are living and thinking that really needs to change. So I, I think it's a combination always of really understanding the systems that we have right now, the educational systems, the governance that we have, and appreciating it and utilizing it to the best means that we can. And at the same time, understanding we need new thinking and new ideas because obviously the paradigm we're in isn't working out so well. Uh, given given the state of uh, whether you want to look at what's going on with our water resources or deforestation or what's happening to indigenous people and certainly what's going on with our climate, that as a species we're looking at a very, very big crossroads. And I, I'm not someone who thinks that it's smart to just say, well, just throw everything out and be negative about you know, our, our government or being negative about our college education. I think that's not a really healthy approach right now. I think that it's really a time of collaboration, of working together, finding out the things that are working, and understanding that all over the world, whether you're in the developing country or in developed countries, that it's really a time to understand that we're in a very big crossroads, and all of us are going to need to change, and those changes are going to happen locally um, and also globally and really close to home, and it really depends on where we come in, where our entry points are, what it is that we need to change. But we cannot continue, certainly, to live how we have been because uh, we're destroying our earth and we're, and we're hurting people, and it, it really is a time to, to make some big transitions. As we look at the bridging capabilities, Osprey, that we have between the establishment uh, call it the corporate mansion, uh, what, whatever you will, and those closer to understanding the needs of the earth and the resulting narrative that comes from that. What is your feeling or focus between the arts and those dynamics as a sculptor and then being able to place these conclusions into a writing perspective? Uh, what do you feel are the strengths of these platforms in this entire process that we're looking at? Well, I think what I'd like to do is maybe give an example, um, because I, in, in um, Uprisings for the Earth, in my book, I did some work with contrasting some things. And um, I became really interested in how images and stories and words can either distance or enhance our relationship to the Earth. And I began to do some research, and I came across some... Um, advertisements that really startled me that I think speak to our cultural narrative and I'm going to share one of them right now because I think it, it, it really shows again not I don't think people who do the advertisements um, that I'm going to be speaking about are trying to have some ill effect I think again it's part of an old paradigm an old way of thinking that we need to change so as an example in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans um, I came across a magazine advertisement from an insurance agency 
And the large text read, and I'm quoting here, how do you deal with an enemy that has no government, no money trail, and no qualms about killing women and children? And the answer is, the ad says, the enemy is Mother Nature. And on August 29, 2005, in the form of Hurricane Katrina, she killed 1,836 people. So, you know, I think things like this that we see on a daily basis in just magazines or in television create a very deep fear of the earth and our disconnect. Um, another one that I saw uh, shows um, a, a truck out in the desert, and, and it's, a, it's an advertisement for the truck, and it basically says, uh, no intelligent life out here, just you. And, and I think we need to change this narrative, and, and to contrast this, I started working with how can we tell a different story, and I'm going to read briefly from one of my sections, uh, one of the chapters in my book, and um, I'm, I'm looking at some of the ways um, our, our language can change and all some, of, some of the wisdom of people who have lived close to the land. So I write, in human nature kinship, we can also have this be revitalized through attention to old-time language rooted in the landscape. During a tour for one of my public monument projects, I stayed in Prague long enough to be intrigued by the Czech language with its compelling Z sounds and rolled R's that almost always confounded my tongue. Through my good friend Milan, a dentist and painter, I learned that the Czech names of the months were still close to the older Slavic root and not based on Roman or Latin translations used in most European languages. You know, as an example, we say January or February, March, which are all going back to Roman or Latin gods. What excited me about the Czech names is that each of them portrays a physical description, often poetic, of the actual local goings-on of that month. They are an entrance, an invitation to recognize and see the land and weather in an alive and interactive relationship. So as an example, January is laden, which means ice, February, unor, which is hibernation or ice lowers, March is bretzen, birch or sap, April is dubin, which means oak, May is kvetin, which means blossom or flower, June is servin, which means red, July is sevenek, which is redder or ripen, August is svepin, sickle, and I could go on, but as I say these names, you can, you can sort of hear and imagine in your mind the seasons changing and when, as an example, the birch tree first has its leaves, then the oak tree has its leaves, when the flowers come, then the red and the ripening time when the fruit's actually ripening, and then going into the sickle when you can see that the people are harvesting the fruits of the land. And I really love this idea of how in our language, if we were talking about the months, that each of the months actually connects us to our landscape. And how would that really influence us to remember the land, you know, in, in our, whether we're living in the city or in the country, and remember that we're living on a living earth and, you know, not just staring at our computers and on our cell phones and watching television inside buildings. But again, bring back to the language a way that we can touch the earth and remember that, you know, we can't live without the seasons. We can't live without the food and the water and the trees. And, and I think in our modern context with over half the world's populations now living in cities, it's just so easy to forget that we're you know, on this beautiful planet. Um, we're we're uh, on a sphere moving around 67,000 miles per hour around our sun. And these really awesome things that need to be appreciated and remembered would also influence us to live here in a better way. You know, I, uh, one of the things I'm working with in my book is like, how do we have a better relationship with the land when we're not connected to our watersheds or we're not connected to the food that we grow or knowing where our energy comes from? You know, it's really hard to care from something when you don't have a relationship with it. You know, just like with people, it's hard to care for people when you don't know them. Where do we place in that, Osprey, the compromise in society? with the large corporations of course a whole discussion on its own i realize we can talk about the influence of the monsantos and degradation of the food chain and that impact upon culture but nevertheless with all that said and following hundreds of years 
with a movement into what I call the mega cities. How is it that we can educate younger generations, wherever they may be, in urban or rural environments, to understand these factors you are pointing to in a very simple process of taking them to nature by understanding its supreme importance? Uh, yeah, I, I very much agree with you. And I'm very inspired, actually, by a lot of the organizations that um, I've been in contact with uh, that are having wonderful programs. And I think we need many more of them that educate children in the school systems. As an example, there's a group called uh, Eco Literacy. And they have a program where they go to schools across the country in the United States. And I know there's there's um, wonderful programs in other countries as well where they actually go into the school system and they have gardens with the young people and they teach them how to grow their own food and then that food is also brought into the cafeteria and then they also learn how to compost and how that goes back into the garden and these very hands-on experiences I think are very very important with young people. Um, I also know and, and actually have um, participated in several programs of taking inner city kids you know, out on camping trips out to the desert or out to the mountains to provide them with that chance to connect with the land. Um, so I think part of it is, is both going, having young people go out on excursions into areas of nature and, and sense the wild and what that feels like and um, how to go out <clears throat> and learn about their watershed and their forests and the mountains around their homes. Um, but I think it's also about bringing some of the green, if you will, and the country back into the city through community gardens and, and through the arts and different means that we can also figure out how to have more parks and rooftop gardens and get our lives more integrated with the land. I think a lot of times in city planning that was not taken in consideration and that that's something um, very innovative and creative city planners are now understanding is very important is that We've got to green our cities at many levels, not just in terms of, you know, changing <clears throat> into a new clean energy economy, but also physically actually having more parks and, and daylighting creeks so that we can have rivers and waterways through our cities. And having a much more integrated relationship with the land, I think, is really important. This talks, of course, to the very conscious communities, which are emerging all over the world from California to countries like Ecuador, South America, even Bosnia, looking at, among other ways of subsistence, permaculture, not so much, I think, talking about community, but actually creating self-sustainability. This, Osprey, I would imagine, is going to become a strong feature of our lives in the future, and I'm sure that this is something we can infuse into the educational system, the, the social structure as we move forward. Do you believe yourself that this is an evolution that is approaching now over the next several years? I, I certainly do, and I think uh, both because many people have a desire for it, because people want to live a different way than we have been, but I also think in a very practical way because of climate change. I think that the fact that uh, our communities need now to become much more resilient, um, that uh, it's imperative that these changes take place in our communities. And, you know, there's so many wonderful examples coming up. There's the eco cities and cool cities and uh, many, many different initiatives going on right now that are, are looking at how we can change our communities to have them become more sustainable and green. Um, one group of scientists I, I just really admire and love their work, um, you might know and, and your listeners might know of a new emerging science called biomimicry. And that term uh, was coined by a wonderful woman named Janine Benyus. And she's a scientist who, who really brought forward the idea of biomimicry to the general public. And um, what biomimics do is they're looking to nature as model. It, it's not the same idea of like even how we can reuse or reduce to recycle, which is also very important. But it's looking to nature to learn from how nature goes about designing and then emulating those designs when we create and manufacture um, so it's not about extracting more and how we can use 
um, uh, the materials of Mother Earth in a different way, so much as how can we emulate how nature does things in, in such a, a sustainable manner and an ecological manner. So I was looking at this uh, one building complex in Zimbabwe, where in Zimbabwe the uh, temperatures fluctuate quite a bit from the daytime until the night. And what Biomimics did um, in their architectural work is they decided to design the ventilation system of this very, very large building complex after the mounds of termites because they saw in this region that the way that termites build their mounds, which are quite large, um, is that it's self-cooling. The way that the termites create tunnels in and out of this very large structure creates actually airflow that is self-cooling. So what these architects did is they designed the ventilation system in the building to be just like this termite mound. And as it turns out, the building now is 90% energy efficient. It saves 90% more energy than um, conventional buildings the exact same size from following this model of termites. And I, and I love these examples, and there's many of them, and I, I mention them in my book, where we can really see by going to how nature goes about designing, we too can live in a much more sustainable way. Um, and so these are just some of the examples I see uh, as, as I go traveling the world about how people are really looking at how we can design our cities better, design our communities better, to, to be sustainable and in a life-enhancing manner with the rest of the earth. This is, of course, for people across the board and especially the younger generation understanding that precise meaning of Mother Earth and Father Sky, you know, the vibrations, the waves, because it's clear after the last 300 years, having moved from a feudal society to a industrial society, that we created technology, energy that really was the product of that awful equation work in my mind with the resulting pollution coming from our every step. Do you consider in your work the merits of these new energies that scientists are developing, including uh, zero-point energy that intends to dilute the output uh, from industry? from this materialism that we've created, this do-consume world that comes out of that, do you see, armed with the experiences and knowledge of all these technologies since the 1700s that will change the way that we live, the ways our bodies function and react, the way that we can all come back into alignment with Mother Earth? Well, I think, you know... Um as we were talking about earlier, I mean, I've just returned from Cancun, and it's very interesting with the, you know, looking at what's going on with the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and the conversations that are going on there amongst scientists and, by, and all different kinds of scientists, you know, uh, chemists and biologists and climate scientists. And then also talking to people there who are from the business sector and people, all kinds of NGOs um, and community leaders from indigenous leaders to women's leaders, uh, people who've been involved in um, uh, environmental work for years and years and years and years. And here's the thing that I think, you know, I, I think that's very important is that we really need everyone's voice and every exploration um, because so much is at stake right now. I don't think there's just one angle or one entry point. And what I like to do is just really encourage people to follow the pursuit that has their passion, that really grabs their attention and, and that, that is very passionate for them because I think that there's no one answer that we need to look at all these different solutions. I mean, from scientists to political leaders to um people and NGOs, pretty much everyone is saying, look, we have the technology we need. We have everything, the tools that we need to transition from a fossil fuel economy to a new clean energy economy. We have the systems we need. We have the technology. We have the solar, the wind, the geothermal. Um, and what's really missing, 
everyone says across the board, is the collective and political will to do it. And I think that's really the leverage point that we need to look at, is how do we generate this collective and political will to make the transition? And I think that's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of care by every single person, not just the negotiators who happen to be in Cancun right now or government leaders, but I mean everyone, the mothers, the fathers, the children, the young people, the scientists, uh, people who work on um, uh, social studies. I think that it, it really means that all of us are going to have to go through our own fields of knowledge and our, our own um, personal communities and our personal lifestyles and look at the entry points that make sense to us and really get busy acting because I think what's crucial right now, as I said, and many are saying, we have the technology we need, but we need to generate this collective will at a new level. And, and I just wanted to say something. When I was in Cancun a few days ago, the United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon said, said something very succinctly, which was, nature isn't waiting while we negotiate. Um, so I would just emphasize that with all these technologies and these different ideas that we have that are available to us, which is really the promising news, that we need to keep being aware that the time clock is ticking when you read the science reports and you see what's going on in places all over the world right now between, you know, the uh, scorching heat that was in Russia this past summer that totally transformed um, how our uh, grain crops are going to be exported this year, the floods in Pakistan with over 20% of the country underwater because of the rivers flooding due to torrential rains. I mean, we've gotten ourselves in a quite urgent situation, and I think that we, we need to keep taking into account the time clock as we look at these technologies and realize we need to implement them now. There are many profound individuals that talk about this evolution process that we are traveling through you know in discussing this with Barbara Marx Hubbard recently uh, talking about literally an evolutionary process that is now in a rebirth period that certainly speaks to the catalyst of, of that in the nuclear bomb in 1945 and Osprey we traveled through the fear of the 50s and the lust of the 60s and the predatory greed that I use as a terminology since, a large factor. In talking to these people that you are involved in, is there an acknowledgement, and I would refer to the famous E.F. Schumacher's idea that small is beautiful, a notion that will actually take us to a locally focused community where the global village will be diluted in eradicating the fossil fuel problem where people will become more cohesive in local communities, local local regions, rather than looking towards the global marketplace that we have today? Well, I think eventually um, that is what will need to happen because of the actual uh, resources at hand and what is going on with our water, our food supplies, our agriculture, um, with our energy sources. I mean, I think things are going to move towards a local basis, as you say, in local community because of the necessity of that. And I think that either we're going to do it in a very harsh way due to the fact of, of uh, climate changes and the consequences of the negative effects of climate change, or we can do it more graciously and with less pain. But I think the transition will happen because what we're doing right now is simply not sustainable. And I'm, I really hope to welcome conversations about that. And um, as you might know, I'm the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, which is based in the San Francisco area. And so, you know, on a daily basis in our organization, we're, we're dealing with very practical things. Uh, we have several projects with uh, partners that we're collaborating with in communities in Africa as well as in Nepal. And, um, you know, a lot of these communities are already in this transition because of uh, the climate changes that they're already experiencing. You know, as, as you know, there's already quite a bit of drought in some areas and then the other extreme flooding in others. And so people who are living close to the land <clears throat> are already uh, needing to 
totally approach their communities in different ways. I think the question is really in, in you know, the United States or in, uh, develop, in the developed world, you know, how are we going to make these transitions and what does this mean for us? And one of the things I like to do at a very practical level is to encourage people to just start really right at home. Um, as an example, most people have no clue where their water comes from. And that's a really good thing to know, you know, about your local watershed. Where does my water come from? How is it protected? Who are the people in my region who care for the waterways? Uh, how, how is our water table doing? What is the condition of our water? Um, how to conserve water? I think this is something people can do to start this process of transitioning. Um, where does your energy come from? Uh, where is it sourced from? Is it coming in a good way? As an example, a lot of people in two very large cities, Las Vegas and Los Angeles, have no clue that their, water, that their energy comes from uh, the Navajo Nation, which has suffered tremendously from the coal-fired power plants that are there. And uh, again, what kind of choices would people make if they knew about where their energy comes from and how it's affecting other people? So I think a, a really good place to begin in terms of looking at our local community is understanding where does our food come from, our water, our energy, and how to start interacting with these systems so that we can really make good choices for our community and for the people who these resources affect. The important question, of course, in the reemergence of cultures and placing importance on indigenous peoples again towards creating a paradigm shift in our economy is taking it away I'm sure from the template of conditioning that we're all certainly been subjected to for so many generations but what is the catalyst and platform uh, for this we see change at local level and communities realizing that the planet is approaching a point where it cannot withstand the pressure upon it anymore but what is it in your mind, Osprey, that it will take to move this across the line in terms of consciousness, not just simply in a developed country like the U.S., but worldwide? What do you think has to take place here? Well, I mean, I do. I'm hopeful in the sense that, you know, through my work on climate change and also as an artist, uh, you know, I really do see people all over the world rolling up their sleeves in their communities doing remarkable things to uh, create these communities and, and awareness and consciousness about um, where we need to go and how we need to live and how we need to work together. Um, and I, at the same time, I think that we're in a very difficult situation with how we have built our economic structures uh, to the point where here in the United States, you know, dealing with a lot of these crucial matters is happening at a subnational level and not at a national level because our politics are so complex that, um, and, and we have, uh, as we talked about earlier, uh, issues of how our, the corporations are involved in these decisions that it's just not moving along fast enough. So I think that it, it really means that the awareness and the consciousness has to happen <clears throat> at a local, state, and subnational level. And I think the thing that's really helping is for people to be in conversation, to, to be able to talk to one another, to be able to have forums. Um, and that, that's the hopeful part, is if we can do a lot more education in the schools. Um, I know with the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus that I run, we hold convening sessions where men and women both can come and learn about what's going on around uh, climate conversations and actions both nationally and internationally because we need to just keep having you know more availability of the information at the same time you know my concern is that here in the United States something really catastrophic has to happen before we really make the changes that are large enough that are going to have the effects that we want I hope that it doesn't go that way but um, you know we're really in a in a race here with 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 the science itself, as as uh, uh, UN Secretary General Ban Ki Moon said. You know, nature isn't waiting while we negotiate. And I would just add, you know, while while we're figuring this out and people are getting aware and conscious, um, 
I'm hopeful in the sense that more and more is happening in civil society, but at the same time, I think that we need to understand people in a lot of countries are already suffering. I was just on the phone this morning with my colleagues from Cameroon in Africa, and you know, she was telling me so many people are dying because of these droughts and the problems with water and the diseases that are coming because of a lack of water. And um, I think we just need to keep aware that you know we're one people, one earth, we're all connected, and and to keep these issues um, in our daily mind, which it's it's not easy to do. You know, many of us are very busy with our own personal lives and problems and childrens to raise and all of these things. But um, I think it behooves us to to understand that um, we are privileged in the United States in many ways, and we we need to step up. And, and do all that we can at this point. There's no doubt that we've all got equal responsibility at this stage and that the world is approaching this perilous climax and it's certainly indicating that to us very clearly. If you look back at the implosion of civilizations in the past, it manifests itself in various you know, ways, uh, genocide, natural disasters, many variables. One of the words, Osprey, that you used earlier that I'm interested in, especially in my work, in working with scientists and leaders, is this word governance. Perhaps governance is the answer to all of these issues, a different type of uh, governments taken on board not only by governments of nations, but also the private sector or the UN even. Do you have any thoughts in your mind in overcoming these many problems that we've been talking about, what type of governance it will take to unify the general public, the leaders, uh, governments of nations to actually stop and look at this and come to a uh, across-the-board agreement or accord before we reach the point where it is too late? Well, one of the, the things that I really love, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the Earth Charter, I think there's some really good documents out there that are that are very valuable, and especially as we look towards uh, everyone going to Rio for the Earth Summit and 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 uh, um, many other events that we're going to ha- are happening in Rio in 2012. That you know this is a good opportunity for world leaders and for NGOs and everyone from different walks to understand that this is, you know, 2012 can be a really important point of coming together for uh, governance and for decisions at a high level that involves the international community. Um, But I, I, I think that, you know, the United Nations framework has its use. I absolutely do. You know, having, like I said, just come back from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change in Cancun, you know, I think that process is not enough by a long shot and has not gone well. But I also think it, it's one of the few frameworks that we have where every country can be involved and different voices can be heard. So I think, I think it's important, but not enough. The, the thing that I would add here, because I think it's important to say, and, and, and of course I have a great deal of interest in this and a bias, but one of the things that I think is very important internationally that is part of the component of change. I don't think it's the only one, but I think it's a crucial one. Historically, we have not heard from the voices of women or indigenous people. And I think that this is what needs to be interjected into these formats, whatever we're talking about in terms of governance or different frameworks or global conversation. Um, Because I think it's the voices that are missing that have also caused us to get into so much trouble. If we look to nature, nature operates in balance. Everything moves towards balance. And I think when we don't have balanced voices in our governance, we also leave room for terrific error. Um, and, and what I like to say, it's not about putting men down, but about lifting women up and all of us, men and women working together. And uh, this is also based on statistics that many of us have studied for years as an example whether when you look at United Nations studies or others, uh, and you're looking at the developed world or the developing world, either one, it shows that when you empower women, some very key things happen that are important for the whole world. Uh, Populations stabilize when you empower women. 
Economies improve when you empower women. Children's health and education improves when you empower women. And I, I think that this is something we cannot overlook, is this need for gender equity right now. You know, over half the wealth right now is in the hands of women. And I'll just add one more point, um, that 80% of all consumer purchases in the United States are decided by women. And just imagine, you know, taking that 80% into the marketplace and having women demand clean energy from their utility companies, as an example. So, you know, I, I think it's really important to some, sometimes break these things down so we can look at them. And I would, I would simply suggest that we really get women into the conversation and Indigenous people. What is the general response to that, Osprey, in showing the importance of women, uh, both in society but also in business, in those that you work with? Uh, for the most part, I, you know, and of course I'm operating in circles that uh, are, are interested in the topics I am. So having said that, you know, of course I get a very, very good response. Um, you know, I speak at a lot of different conferences and, and I think that it's a message whose time has come and that for the most part, um, I hear a very positive response. I mean, even, you know, Fortune 500 companies have studies out that show when you put women in positions of leadership uh, that companies improve and their bottom line improves. I mean, people are really recognizing that there's a different way, not a better way, but a different way that women view uh, the world, a different way. There's been studies that show that um, women view risk differently, you know, look at more long-term risks which of course is very important when you want to look at caring for the earth and for future generations and our children. You really need to have that way of viewing things in terms of long-term and not just immediate risks or rewards. And women are very well equipped and poised to do that. Well, looking back in history, there's no doubt that women are important. The, the mother is vitally important, I believe. Looking at the spread of information, the internet, etc., would you agree that much of the info and guidance that needs to get across to people regarding that importance of the planet, um, Gaia, uh, Mother Earth, Father Sky, uh, the vibrations we need to align ourselves with, are somewhat complicated now because that access is excessive, there certainly seems to be uh, an ADD effect. What are your feelings about that and how the information can be uh, more positive and aligned with the issues that we have? Well, I think that, you know, in a funny way, in a very simple way, I think in what's important to do at times is to go outside and actually be with the trees. Go outside and look at the stars. Uh, if you're in a city, go to the nearest park. I, I think one of the things that we need to do, I know I need to do this, is to actually get our information directly from the land and give ourselves that as well. Because when we are connected to the earth, however we, we want to do that in our own way, we get very grounded in ourselves in a very different way and that health and that well-being that connecting to nature gives us um, is very important to us and then when we go back from that perspective of being renewed with with nature however we want to do that by walking along a river or being by the ocean being in our garden then when we go back to this huge array of information as as you stated I think we have the proper perspective to then wade our way through it and get the information that's important to us and to our values and to whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish um, but I think we need to do this standing well with our feet on the ground I made the point Osprey at a recent speaking engagement that nature suddenly needs to benefit from us and that we cannot see ourselves any further benefiting from it uh, that paradigm has to be reversed what do you feel as we come to the close of this program that people on a personal level uh, corporately and at community level need to do 
to really affect change? To really trust your passion, whatever that is that you think is your part right now, this is the time to step up and do that and know that you will have allies and understand that no matter how small or insignificant you think your step might be, it's actually a really important thing that everyone acts on those impulses now because we're all in this together and we're all connected and when you do, you will feel more hopeful and that's a really important thing as we go forward to build these resilient communities and go through the transition that people feel that they are involved and that's, that's a great way to um, keep ourselves from being in denial or feeling too overwhelmed is to actually get involved. Uprisings from the Earth, reconnecting culture with nature. Osprey, for our listeners, our audience today, where can they find this publication? Uh, well, the best place to get it, as many times people say, is Amazon. It's out in paperback, it's out in hardcover, and now recently out on Kindle, so Amazon.com. And also, people can visit me and see the other work that I'm involved in at www.OspreyOrioLake.com, O-S-P-R-E-Y-O-R-I-E-L-L-E, Lake.com. Osprey Oriole Lake, it's been a great pleasure talking to you today. We could spend many more hours talking about these issues in detail. Certainly look forward to sharing another program with you in the very near future. Thank you so much. It's been very enjoyable talking to you. And to our listeners today, I hope that you enjoyed this program as much as I did. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile... Wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. In Discussion with David Gibbons is sponsored in part by Bowman Global Change. Specializing in helping companies reduce their carbon emissions, Bowman Global Change applies real science to real business practices to produce results. From designing green programs to one-on-one training to helping set up green action teams in your business, Bowman Global Change translates complex science in practical ways that everyone can understand and use. For more information or to discover how Bowman Global Change can help your organization, visit bowmanglobalchange.com. Come.